Trident, the government gets its vanguards in a row. The finger points at Putin for Litvinenko's death and beaten, tortured and paraded on TV. An RAF pilot remembers his capture in Iraq. I felt weak. I thought people uh, would think I'm a traitor. And I thought that was how my family would see me. The Defence Secretary Michael Fallon has promised a House of Commons vote on replacing Trident soon. Michael Fallon was speaking as he visited HMS Vigilant, one of the four nuclear-armed submarines that need to be replaced by the successor programme. He's been speaking to our reporter, James Hurst. I'm here today to re-emphasise the importance of the deterrent. It's never been needed more than now. We live in a much more dangerous, more unpredictable world. We saw the nuclear test carried out by North Korea. Uh, we need the deterrent, and we need to start very soon to replace these four existing Vanguard boats with new boats that will last us throughout the 2030s, the 2040s, and the 2050s. Are you concerned, perhaps, that Jeremy Corbyn's position and the, the SNP, who received a lot of electoral support, are actually beginning to change people's minds on Britain being nuclear armed? No, the opinion polls still show a majority in favour of keeping the deterrent. The last votes we've had in Parliament uh, show a strong majority in retaining the deterrent. And uh, successive governments, Labour and Conservative, when they've looked hard at it, have always concluded that we should keep the deterrent as our ultimate insurance policy against uh, any of our adversaries that might be tempted to use nuclear weapons. You've promised a Commons vote on replacing these submarines this year. When is that vote going to be? We haven't scheduled the date yet, but we need, uh, we need to uh, put, the, put the decision uh, to replace the four boats to Parliament uh, for approval at some point this year, because we need to get on now and build the four new boats. It takes 10 to 12 years to build a nuclear submarine, and we need to be sure we have the new boats available from the 2030s. Are we talking weeks or months before a vote? Well, we haven't scheduled the precise date, but uh, what I can assure you is we shall be asking Parliament to endorse the uh, decision set out in the uh, Strategic Defence Review we published just before Christmas. That was Defence Secretary talking to James Hurst. So what goes on at Faz Lane Day today? Well, James spent yesterday looking around Her Majesty's naval base Clyde and sent this report. Fazling Naval Base sits about 25 miles northwest of Glasgow on the still waters of Gareloch. It's very close to the mouth of the River Clyde, with easy access to the open waters of the Atlantic. So it is from here that one of four Vanguard-class submarines will set out every three months on a secret, silent patrol carrying nuclear weapons the government calls our ultimate insurance policy. It is a premier line of defence for the UK. There is no other way of countering extreme threats from another uh, nuclear capability than through the nuclear submarine and the Royal Navy delivers that. Rear Admiral John Wheel is in overall charge of the Royal Navy submarine fleet, including the Vanguard-class subs, which carry Trident missiles with their nuclear warheads. Four submarine, one always at sea. The other three, one will be uh, in maintenance, as this one is, one's under training, and one's in deep maintenance, uh, as in Devonport, in the garage, 
uh, under extensive refit, and we've just had uh, HMS Vengeance come out of a four-year refit. Fazlane, combined with the nuclear weapons depot at Coolport, make up the Clyde Naval Base, the largest single-site employer in Scotland, with around 6,800 people, about half of them civilian and half military. The Fazlane flotilla also includes seven mine hunters and three attack submarines, so there is much specialist engineering to be done here, as well as logistic support and training. Action stations, action stations, action stations, missile. On land, a specialist training and simulator facility puts crews of Vanguard submarines through drills that they hope never to have to use. You don't end up here by mistake. You're pretty well trained and pretty well uh, prepared. Commander Dan Martin is the commanding officer of HMS Vigilant, just back into Faz Lane for maintenance. The boat got back a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we have a two-crew system, so my crew have taken uh, took custody of the boat early in January, uh, and we've now started the maintenance period while the other crew are on leave. So what's the, what's the routine for, for you and your crew? Three months at sea, three months back at home? Yeah, it's, uh, the, uh, if we, we talk about on-crew and cycle, so it, it tends to be approximately, whilst we're in two-boat availability like we are at the moment, approximately five to six months, uh, and we take that in, uh, we split, so we do five to six months each, uh, and then in our five to six months off we have an opportunity to take leave, and more importantly we have to go and do all our training and revalidation for essentially our certification uh, to operate particularly the nuclear aspects of the platform and all safety. Nuclear-armed submarines have been sailing from here for 49 years. The first Vanguard-class sub was launched 24 years ago. Back then, they were designed to operate for 25 years. But their successors won't start coming into service for at least a decade and a half. So, while political debate rages about their replacement, they will continue to sail and be maintained to keep Britain's nuclear deterrent continuously at sea. James Hurst reporting, well, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is with me. Hello, Christopher. Um, a big push by the government for the renewal of Trident, uh, going ahead as planned, it seems. Going ahead as planned, and, and, and some very curious stuff about uh, from the Defence Secretary, Mr Fallon. Curious in what way? Well, I mean, he says it's never been a deterrent. The nuclear deterrent has never been more needed than now. Yeah, I wondered about that you know, as well. I, I, sorry, I must have missed the Cold War, that's all I can say. <laughs> um, uh, but no, Sounds good on the day, doesn't that's it? That's right, and then he followed that up very quickly about, you know, North Korea mm. uh, now got a... Uh, how did... The people might, that might want to attack, use their nuclear weapons against... Well, what he it? didn't say was how we might persuade the United Kingdom independent capability to be used against North Korea. Uh, or even the North Korean leader. I mean, what has North Korea got? You need. I mean, we all know the dangers, but you've okay. got to start explaining it. The other thing, which is, he was very sort of. Uh, well, no, we ha we haven't uh, <clears throat> decided when the debate is going to be. It'll be probably this year, if it's so urgent. Why is there no debate date set? And the answer to that is because he is uncertain whether what's happening in the Labour Party mm. might actually start loading uh, Labour policy against renewal, um, would the SNP be able to sort of catch up with that Labour dissident uh, unit? And then, but the whole debate in date, and the government is not going to go into the House with a, with a, with a, a motion 
for for the next stage of renewal, and we've got so-called gateway uh, uh, points coming up in 2016 when we have to decide, or the United Kingdom has to decide whether to cut another bit of metal or, mm. or put something on, on in, in, into 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 the financial stocks. Oh, and while we're talking about about Labour and Trident, this third way that Jeremy Corbyn has uh, hinted about this week that the, the, the boats without the nuclear weapons. Well, yes, and then you get, again, the defence director who say, well, it's a bit like sort of giving somebody a gun, but not giving many bullets. Well, this is absolute rubbish, absolute rubbish. And, it, it, you know, it is, uh, the debate deserves more than that from the defence secretary. I would have thought. I mean, for example, there's absolutely no reason why you can't have a boat, um, a, a, a new submarine, where it has partial nuclear capability, partly conventional capability. There is absolutely no reason um, why you for can't... For example... Well, you could have, for example, suppose you've got six, six, 16, um, uh, 16 uh, missiles on board and each has, let's say, uh, three uh, independently uh, manoeuvrable missile uh, heads. There's no reason why you can't have, say, one-third of them uh, would be conventional. Other thing to remember, if you're going to be delivering something which you're going to be using and for the, to, to 2050, 2060, you've also got to think of technology. What might a nuclear or a conventional warhead be like in, let's say, 10, 15 years' time. And that's the time the boats are going. So don't keep it going in service. Don't keep the debate at 2016 level. You've got to start thinking what they'll be like in 2035. Sit Still to come, the new service complaints ombudsman tells us how she plans to deal with bullying and harassment and beaten, tortured and paraded on TV. Flight Lieutenant John Peters remembers his capture by Saddam's forces 25 years on. A British judge says the Russian President Vladimir Putin probably approved a plan by Russia's FSB security service to kill the former spy Alexander Litvinenko. Judge Robert Owen said he was certain Litvinenko was given tea laced with a fatal dose of polonium-210 at a London hotel in November 2006. Well, Christopher, just remind us a bit more about this story. OK, in November, um, November 2006, there was a meeting in a hotel in London um, and two Russians, uh, Andre uh, uh, Lugvoy and um, Dmitry Kovtun, um, were at that meeting and and the uh, Alexander uh, Litvinenko, he drank some tea. Inside that tea was a, a, was a sort of fatal dose of polonium-210. Uh, um, <clears throat> it was incurable. He died. Then came up the, uh, the debate of why would you want to attack somebody like that? Um, and who would actually authorise the attack on something like that? For example, the, if you were using polonium-210, uh, where would you get it from? You can't just march into the arms of the quartermaster's store and say, give me a, a cup full of that. Uh, and so there had to be some official reason for doing it an, an authority, and the authority was immediately swung to President Putin because they say that's right up the tree, and that's killing somebody on another person's ground, uh, somebody who was in the FSB, who was working for MI6, not as a defend, mm-hmm. not as an intelligence officer, but as an agent in some in some form, and therefore this was the debate: was 
did this order come from the top mm. or was it approved from the top and what was the reason for doing it and what we're going to do about the two guys we accuse of doing it. Hence this has been the subject of such controversy for the last 10 years and we're joined now by Dr Yuri Fleshtinsky, Litvinenko's friend, collaborator and co-author of Blowing Up Russia, a book which accused the Russian secret services of staging acts of terrorism in an effort to bring Putin to power. Good to speak to you today. And um, What's your reaction to the report findings? Well, I think we were released, uh, relieved to see that finally uh, Putin is named by the high British court as a uh, person uh, implicated in this murder. I think we believe for some years that this might be so. Now it is formal and now Putin uh, will uh, go into history as a person who gave the order to kill Litvinenko. I'm quite sure that that's precisely how this was, taking into account that Putin and Litvinenko knew each other. They met in 98 uh, for at least uh, one uh, conversation and meeting uh, that uh, Putin was in charge of the FSB before he became prime minister first and then president. And he also was very close and was a friend of the next uh, FSB chief, uh, Nikolai Patrushev. The Home Secretary, Theresa May, has described the judgment as deeply disturbing, but not a surprise. She said it was a, a blatant and unacceptable breach of the most fundamental tenets of international law and civilised behaviour. What do you make of, of this kind of response? Well, uh, we have to remember that Litvinenko was not just killed in London. He was not pushed under the train. He was killed with a, a radioactive poison in which damage, by the way, uh, uh, you know, probably many other lives in, in London of other British citizens, and they probably just do not know about this or do not feel it now. Uh, then we have to remember that this is not the only murder which took place in London. This is probably the, the, the most... Uh, you know, a well-known murder, but uh, not, not the only one. There was a businessman, Peripilichny, who was poisoned in London in 2013. There was a very questionable death of Boris Berezovsky, uh, another mm -hmm. uh, Russian immigrant who lived in London and was very critical of Putin. Indeed. Uh, so this this is unfortunately not the only murder, and the question is... Well, we, we don't know that for um, sure, to be, to be fair, but let's just stick to the story about Litvinenko, uh, and Russia's foreign ministry has issued a statement saying the process has not been transparent in this case and there was no reason to expect it to be objective and unbiased. I suppose that's the kind of response you'd expect from Russia, isn't it? Well, this is very ironic that the Russian foreign ministry speaks about... Uh, you know, legal uh, system in Britain being not transparent enough, while at the same time uh, there are major oppositionist uh, leaders like Politkovsky or like Nimtsov are killed in Moscow and uh, people who were behind this are not named or punished. Uh, so uh, th this this is expected. But but uh, the investigation took several years, as we know. Uh, I, I think the, the, it was as serious and as precise as it could be. So I'm you know, quite satisfied with the level of the investigation and language of the report. Uh, at the same time, of course, I have to mention that this was due mainly to 
uh, activity of Marina Litvinenko and not mm. to the initiative of the uh, British government, yeah. which became active of only after 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine. There's an interesting point here, isn't there, where you can start making a comparison with, uh, with the position with Saudi Arabia, for example. The United Kingdom said they're going to uh, sort of do something about the private investments of the two people they're accused of causing this murder. The United Kingdom will not disturb relations with Russia, just as they will not disturb relations with Saudi Arabia. However, however, they think those relations should be sort of uh, in doubt. Yeah, j- just briefly, uh, Dr. Fleshtinsky, um given your connections with, with Litvinenko, given the book you wrote yourself, how concerned are you about your own safety, or have you been over the years? Well, I have been since uh, we started to write the book together, and this, of course, took some time to write it, to publish it. This became a very uh, well-known book in many countries, and this was named by the, by court as one of the reasons for Litvinenko to be killed. But uh, uh, the, the question is not about my safety. I think the question is whether we are safe today when we have uh, Mr. Putin in charge of Russia, who is not afraid to kill a British citizen in London okay. with radioactive poisoning. Mm. Dr. Yuri Fleshdinsky, I suppose we'll have to wonder how safe you feel, but uh, thank you for your time today. A huge game-changer, that's how the Service Complaints Ombudsman describes the powers that come with her new job, and Nicola Williams plans to use them to combat bullying, harassment and the code of silence that stops service personnel from making complaints. And she joins us now. Good to speak to you today, Nicola Williams. Uh, Mm. Why has this post been created now, exactly? Well, it's an idea whose time has come. Um, It's certainly not a signal that there are any more serious issues in the forces, but in the the previous organisation, which had lasted from 2008 until the end of last year, it became increasingly clear that the service complaints process was not working efficiently, effectively or fairly. Hence hence the need for this. Yes, they they had a service complaints commissioner. You're an ombudsman. Why why has it taken so long for the armed forces to get an ombudsman when almost every other public body has one? Well, I think it would be quite unfair to say that it has actually taken a long time. Um, With the previous organisation that had existed for seven years, it became clear during the course of that organisation that the powers that both my previous predecessor in post and I as the last commissioner had were not sufficient to uh, do the job properly for our servicemen and women in terms of handling their complaints. Uh, That's the reason why the organisation now exists. So what are your biggest areas of concern? Well, the biggest, the the areas of concern that tend to hit the headlines uh, are usually issues around bullying, harassment and discrimination. They account for about half the number of complaints that we see. But the other half, which might not be as, as headline making but are of equal concern to the servicemen and women who are suffering from incidents arising out of it are matters concerned with terms and conditions of service. Uh, So that really is the broad range of the work that we have. And are you confident that that your position now and the creation of this role will get more people to come forward and make a formal complaint who might not have done before? Yes, I am. And, and, and I'm so happy that you use the word confidence because the one thing that we want to encourage is for people to be confident in the service complaint system as a whole, a system which is actually the services. Uh, it's their system, but we oversee that system. People were concerned about delay and therefore had uh, very little confidence in the system that anything would be done. And if it, if it was why, done... It why t- is there so little confidence or why has there been so little confidence? Uh, mostly around issues to do with delay because the length of time it had taken to resolve something, a lot of people 
lost um, faith in an effective system if it takes longer than it should in order to resolve matters. That's the main reason. But certainly because of the way in which you yourself have You've quoted me as describing it as a game changer. And it is really to provide a, a new way of dealing with matters, a speeded up way, both within the services yeah. and within my office. How much more difficult is it to get people within the armed forces to make complaints when a lot of the ethos of the armed forces is about loyalty? And, and I'm, once again, I'm very glad that you said that because that is something that we realise. Uh, service people, and I say this as a civilian who has only been exposed to service life intensely over the last year or so, they're generally very resilient and very stoic and don't like to complain. And there is a sense that if I, even if you have a legitimate complaint, that you're somehow breaking ranks to do so. It is not breaking ranks to make a legitimate complaint. Um, you can have such a thing as misplaced loyalty. Um, if you see something that's wrong and you don't want to complain about it, even though you know it's wrong. We're there to encourage people to make legitimate complaints and once they make them we will deal with them in a timely manner and very and effectively and professionally and what about your your role itself i mean it's a civilian role but you have been given the rank equivalent to a general how how important is it to have that ranking in that role well, the, the, first of all, I am an ombudsman, first and foremost. And whilst it, what you said is absolutely true, the significance of that, it, it's, it's just to show that I have the sufficient weight and seniority in order to, to deal with these types of complaints. But an ombudsman in and, of, in and of itself, even if I didn't have that ranking equivalent, is a grave and uh, serious role that commands a lot of power and respect. All right, Nicola Williams, good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kate. The Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nicholas Horton, has joined his counterparts from the 27 other NATO member countries at the Alliance's headquarters in Brussels. The latest of the twice-yearly meetings will focus on the fight against Islamic State extremism and counter-terrorism operations in the Mediterranean. Christopher, it follows on from yesterday's Foreign Minister's meeting in Paris, doesn't it? Yeah, you've got, you've got more meetings than you can shake a stick at <laughs> at the moment. Uh, yes. in, in the, just in the past three days... Um, Let's put them in some sort of perspective. You've got um, a, a NATO meeting, which is foreign ministers' uh, meeting, which is very important because these are the people that are nearest to, poli- nearest to policy. The other guys actually say, look, this is what we should do and we could try about it. But these are the uh, fellows that make the policy. So you've got uh, Frank Walter uh, Steinmeier, the German foreign minister, saying that they want some sort of guarantees about Ukraine. You've got uh, uh, Wojciechowski, the Polish uh, Foreign Minister Vitrov Wojciechowski saying Poland wants a permanent NATO defence base in Poland. Mm. Now, you imagine what Putin might say about that. And this is totally against all things that a lot of other people want to happen. You've got the uh, February Defence Minister's meeting, which is now being promised because we're not doing enough. We, I say, some of the Western states are not doing enough to try and sort things out in Syria and Iraq. And therefore, uh, Ash Carter, the American Defence Secretary, is saying next month we must have another another meeting. And there's something else which is, I think, is probably going to have longer-term importance. There's a meeting uh, of the EU which has a defence aspect of it. And when you consider, if you think about the EU, a lot of the countries in the EU are also countries in NATO. And the political handbagging that goes on in in those meetings is just as important for defence. And I think that that, in the long term, should we get involved in Poland, should we, what we're going to do about Ukraine, because that job's not finished yet, what is going to be the relationship with, 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 with Putin, what is going to happen in Syria, what is going to happen to the meetings in, in Vienna uh, uh, next week, for 
example, where we've got to uh, decide, can you carry on with the meeting because some people are not going to be coming and other people are going to object, for example, if, uh, if, if Turkey objecting, if the, if the Kurds come. Um, that becomes more and more important. Think EU, mm. not always the defence ministers. And, of course, we've got this Geneva meeting next week on Syria, haven't we? That is very important. That's an example of somebody saying, right, we're going to have that meeting. We've got to discuss the next stage where we go from Syria and uh, go in Syria. And, and the large part of that will be, can we get to a point where you could have an agreement which will be based on the fact that, uh, that the president, Assad, would actually say, yes, I will go as a consequence of this process, I will actually leave. Uh, and at the moment, with the Russians actually supporting... Well, moment. the Russians are supporting Assad and said, our oh, boy's not going anywhere. Hmm. The Iranians are supporting him. Uh, they're saying exactly the same thing. So what you can actually see... Is I love it, the way you say it, our boy's not going anywhere. Well, it, it, <laughs> I cannot uh, imagine them saying it quite like that, you know. Well, I don't know. I sometimes... I some, this is, this is a it's wrong thing to say, but we can say it. Um, I sometimes <laughs> anyway. see the whole thing has this... Uh, in Premier Division football, and I know it's not a game when all those people are, be, are being killed and, and maimed and worse... But there is a sense that the people that are running these things, mm -hmm. that the people are negotiating, have a Harry Redknapp uh, uh, manner about them, and that it's all about the negotiations. Mm -hmm. It's all about be, uh, be, being at the meeting in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, the, that is the tragedy. In truth, when the whole thing started, let's say uh, Syria, the ideal way of being, mm -hmm. doing it would have been to let it work out regionally. That hasn't happened, and that's why you've got all these meetings. It's 25 years since two RAF airmen were captured, tortured and paraded on television by Saddam Hussein after they were shot down in the Iraqi desert. Pilot Flight Lieutenant John Peters and his navigator ejected from their tornado as it caught fire during Operation Desert Storm. He told BFBS reporter Verity Gear that an Iraqi soldier told him he had to go on television or he'd never see his wife and children again. So then they bring you into the room and they put the lights up and... They give you a script. I refuse to do the script. They beat you. I knew my eye was all swollen up. Um, so I started playing punch drunk um, and talking very quiet and down and not saying anything. And then this major, Iraqi major, huge guy, great big jaw, great big moustache, unshaven, pulled me up, nose, nose, shoved a gun against my eyeball and said, you will do this or I will kill you. And so they put the microphone up on books so it was really close to me and I thought, right, well, I won't do the script. So I put my head down because I thought I want to show everyone I do, I'm doing this under duress. So I thought, well, I'll put my head down, I'll go... I cannot do this. And my only pride is I didn't do the script. All I said was, I'm Flight Lieutenant Peters, I've bombed an airfield. And that's my pride of the war. I got away with um, not doing what they said. And after that, I thought, you feel deflated after that, because I thought, now they're just going to kill me. I felt weak. I thought people... Uh, would think I'm a traitor. And I thought that was how my family would see me. So 25 years on the RAF is still bombing Iraq. How do you feel about that? I'm a 
ambivalent, the fact that the RAF is bombing Iraq. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that uh, aircrew and the RAF still uh, can achieve amazing things. Uh, I'm disappointed that 25 years after the war, that effectively we are still involved in war. We've had 25 years of war. It hasn't always been in the newspapers, but we've had 25 years. And when you join the military and when you go to war, you assume, certainly after the first Gulf War, that's, that, you know, I'm going to use these ridiculous words, that you're training, you've got the honour and integrity that you're going to affect a positive result at the end. And yet we've had 25 years of war, and that's not the military. And the military will do whatever the political uh, intent is. But... Uh, it's this expectation that the military will solve something. And the military can only go so, so far, land, air or sea, before the politicians have to solve that problem. And that is what I'm disappointed about. Uh, we are here 25 years later doing the same thing, still uh, blowing up stuff and not solving problems. That was John Peters speaking to Verity Gear. Uh, Christopher, the frustration he felt about the politics failing it, uh, to back up the military campaigns was quite palpable there, wasn't it? Yes. More importantly, the most crucial thing of that was how describing how he was interrogated. Um, Capture-prone service people, SBS, SAS and air crew do a thing called escape and evasion exercises, during which they're trained to resist interrogation. To resist, he would have been trained to resist Russians interrogating him. When he got into a real war, it was totally different. All the training, forget it. And that is the whole thing about the military today, is that nobody anticipates the war you're going to get into, but train for the last war. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back at the same time this time next week. Until then, from me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This.